You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A couple weeks ago, I'm sitting at the Vail Airport, Matt, and there's this guy pounding away next to me on his laptop, working Wait, there's hard. an airport in Vail? There is. Eagle. It's nice. about a half hour from Vail. Nice. So I see this guy next to me. He looks kind of familiar. I said, hey, who, who, Matt Luzzetti. He's, you know, he's the economist guy at Deutsche Bank. So I said, hey, how was your ski trip? He didn't ski. He was actually out there on a conference, and he didn't ski. So well, I said, people do that. It's work. No. I mean, I said, we got to get you in the studio here. We need to figure out what's going on. Matt Luzzetti's in our studio today. He's from Deutsche Bank, chief U.S. economist, uh, and not an avid skier, obviously. Uh, but I appreciate I, the work I, I did actually ski for the first time this past weekend. Oh, you did? In, okay. In, in New York. <laughs> okay. Good. We appreciate, I can tell Matt's clients, he was at Unveil working hard, and that's what you want uh, for your chief U.S. economist. So, Matt, we had some eco data today that just seemed kind of to kind of put a, you know, I guess solidify the call that this Fed can go higher for longer. Is that what you guys at Deutsche Bank are thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you got the data this morning. Uh, obviously, the jobless claims data remained very low, consistent with a tight labor market with a lot of momentum. I'd also note the core PCE inflation data were revised higher. We expected that a little bit because it's reflecting what we've already seen from the CPI data. I think tomorrow we'll get core PCE. We're, we're above consensus. We expect it to be 0.5 month on month. And I really think the trend of the recent data is with upward revisions a lot of momentum in the economy, a lot of resilience in the economy and the labor market, yeah. and less disinflation than the Fed thought at the February meeting. So inflation looked like it was slowing down pretty quickly from the June headline CPI peak of 9.1%. And what's the idea now, that we've slowed at around 6 and we're not getting any lower? Yeah, I think I would focus on these three-month changes because it, it strips out the very high prints that we saw uh, early last year. And I think the revisions there have been really important. So core CPI looked like on a three-month change, it was decelerating down to 3.1%, getting closer to the level that's consistent with the Fed's objective. That was actually revised higher by more than a percentage point. And then with this latest data, you have a three-month annualized change for core CPI that's 45 4.6%, you know, very far away from the Fed's objectives. I do think, you know, as we see core PC tomorrow, it'll be closer to 4.4, You've seen some disinflation. We're off the peak. But the latest data tell us that the path here isn't easy. It's not just continued disinflation. We're likely to see somewhat higher in prints over the next few months. So Matt, smart guys like you, are you taking the recession call off the table? I'm not sure if you had a recession call, but are the economists in general taking that recession call off the table, do you think? 
We've always had a recession cold, but it's always been the back half of this year. Okay. Um, it is in Q4 for us right now. I think the latest flow of the data fits well with that type of timeline. And it fits well with that because, look, the economy has good momentum now. Uh, the, the idea that it's going to fall into recession in Q1 or probably even Q2 doesn't seem very likely given the momentum. At the same time, the repricing that we're seeing with the Fed, the idea that the terminal rate needs to be higher, we're at 5.6 for the terminal rate, so we think they hike through through July. I think that will create tighter financial conditions. Consumers, that, that households are uh, eating through their excess savings through the second half of this year. So we still have that, that timeline in place for our recession call. So how bad does it get? How bad do these long and variable lags hit us in Q4, we're already hearing uh, news about huge price drops in, in housing, um, over a trillion dollars nationwide, uh, uh, off 5%. We're hearing news about a slowdown in, I just talked to the CEO of Ducati in North America, and he said, you know, the high rates are putting a crimp on motorcycle sales, for example. Yeah, I think that's been, you know, assessing that long and variable lags is always difficult. I think that there's been uh, some quick transmission from the Fed's policies to financial conditions. We saw certainly what happened with the housing market, mortgage rates spiking. But it's been, uh, I think, a little bit slower to impact the consumer and a little bit slower to impact the labor market. I think in part that's because you've had this latent fiscal stimulus out there with households still with one trillion of stimulus. And it's also because you have a structurally undersupplied labor market. So you have firms that need labor, have had difficulty in finding labor, and it's led to this very resilient, resilient labor market. Knowing exactly when those, when that financial condition tightening hits the economy, I think is always, always very difficult. But how deep do you think the recession could be? Because two quarters of contraction, we've seen that already, yep. and it wasn't a recession apparently, um, as far as we know. And we could see it again without feeling like we're in a deep recession. Is that what you expect, shallow, or do you think it could hit us hard and unemployment could rise to 5% or more? Yeah, so I think it's all about the labor market. You know, yeah. whether or not we have a technical recession that has two quarters of negative growth, I think is somewhat irrelevant to the market and the Fed at this point. It's really about does the labor market begin to crack and does it begin to weaken? From a historic perspective, our recession looks kind of moderate. It looks like the early 1990s. You have the unemployment rate rising by about two percentage points from, from trough to peak. Um, it's a big move from today's perspective, no doubt, but from a historic perspective, it's actually a relatively mild uh, recession that we're expecting. What is your view on the labor market? It's just shocking to me that it is so strong, so vibrant. The jolts data, the unemployment data, everywhere you look, we don't see any cracks, do we? No, I think you've, you've seen it in some sectors. You know, obviously you have tech layoffs that are ongoing. Yep. Uh, you see it in the sectors that have employment well above the pre-COVID trend. You know, all those sectors have slowed materially. Many of them are actually reducing their jobs. In those sectors that have employment that are well below pre-COVID trends, leisure and hospitality is one, healthcare is another, the government sector is another. They've really been driving uh, employment growth. They're really driving, I think, a lot of the tightness in the labor market. And really, until that changes, it's unlikely that you're going to see negative uh, payrolls prints. Uh, I don't think that that's happening over the next few months, just given the momentum. But the Fed needs something to change here in the labor market, especially with what's happened with the inflation data recently. I think that we should have a, a lot less confidence that inflation is on this very clear downtrend back to target. So what about um, if we do have a recession, if we do have a weakening labor market and uh, um, you know that affects growth, do we see cuts? Do you expect the Fed to cut rates at the end of this year, at the beginning of 2024? So we've pushed out our expectation for cuts. We do expect that they begin to cut rates in early 2024. But I think it's all about 
not only inflation, but what happens to the labor market. If we end this year and the labor market looks a lot like it does today and core inflation is 3% or above, the, no the Fed's does. not going to be cutting rates. Yeah. And you know, that, that's close to what the Fed has been forecasting. They have this rise in the unemployment rate. So I think it's if you get this weakening in the labor market, if you see the unemployment rate rising 4.5%, 5%, that's an environment where if inflation is closer to 3%, I do think the Fed would be cutting rates. That's our baseline, but there's this risk of the labor market remaining more resilient, inflation remaining a bit stickier. You say closer to 3%. Is for core PC inflation. Do, do they, is it, they say 2%, right? But do they really mean 3 No, I think they're, you know, they're adamant today, no doubt. And I think that they will stick to that. But the question is, what does the labor market look like in that environment? If it's still very tight, producing wage growth that's very elevated, they can't cut rates. If the labor market is looking very loose and disinflationary pressures are clear looking forward, then they can back off of a plus 5% Fed funds rate, bring it back down and track inflation lower uh, to a more normal level. You got a PhD in UCLA. How good was that, UCLA? Uh, <laughs> so it, it'd be a lot more fun if you weren't getting a PhD at UCLA. <laughs> I was going to say, the undergrad at UCLA sounds awesome. So, PhD, right. not so much. Not as fun. You look out, out of the library at, at the weather, and it's not as fun as you would expect, I guess. <laughs> All right, good. Matt Luzetti, uh, proud graduate of Villanova undergrad, got his PhD uh, at UCLA. Pretty cool there. Great business school. Uh, at UCLA, the Haas School. Matt Luzetti, Chief U.S. Economist, Deutsche Bank, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And again, I can attest to all Matt's institutional investor clients out there that he was in Vail, but he was working. He wasn't skiing, bumming off like I was. Uh, so good stuff there. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to talk preferred stock. Their analysts don't know from livestock from preferred stock. Name that movie. <laughs> Wall what? Street. Uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, okay. Doug Baker, portfolio manager and head of preferred securities uh, at Nuveen. He's based in Chicago, but we got him live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, we don't talk enough, nearly enough, Doug, about preferred stock, preferred securities. What's the pitch to own preferred securities? What's the advantage? Well, I think I think for us, it's an income solution that that's high quality. Okay. And and you can generate this income without taking excessive credit risk. And if you choose your securities carefully, you can do it without taking significant duration risk or interest rate risk. And I think in this environment today, with rates as volatile as they are. Finding a solution where you can generate, and it's also tax-efficient income in, in a lot of instances, doing that without having to make a significant call on interest rates, I think is appealing for a lot of folks. 
And then again, for those folks that think, hey, there's a recession around the corner, not driving that income through taking a lot of credit risk at this point in time too is also kind of compelling. So why are they called preferred? I mean, are you higher up on um, the credit list, creditors list? If you if they go bankrupt, are you not broke as a preferred holder? <laughs> do you get better voting rights? That's yeah. So do you get special dividends? That's 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 the uh, so you're preferred but not very preferred. Okay. You're preferred to the common shareholder, and that's typically about it. So you're typically your payments, and for a lot of our securities, there will be a clause that will say, hey, if, if you're making a distribution to your common shareholder, that common equity dividend's going out, you have to pay your preferred security. So, so you do get some preference from that point. And then also, if, and we'll talk about why this is a, a, a low probability event, but if you did have one of our issuers, say, default or go bankrupt in our space, you would have a claim on assets above the common shareholder. So you do get a, a, yep. a preferential treatment in that from that perspective. From the issuer's perspective, um, are there certain sectors that, whether they're financials or whatever, mm -hmm. that typically are issuers of preferreds? And if so, why? So it's heavily dominated by financial services, and in, okay. in particular, banks. So banks are a big issuer of preferreds, roughly about 65% of our issuer base, banks. Another 10 or 15% insurance companies. That's a plus and a minus. So we're gonna have sector concentration, yep. but we think that that's a good thing in this environment because look, let's face it, banks today are incredibly strong. And it's really a result of the financial crisis we had close to you know, 10, 12 years ago that they're in a great position today. But the outlook is also really constructive for banks. They're benefiting tremendously from this rise in interest rate environment. And so, so it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a way, I think, for us to also benefit from rising interest rates from a fundamental perspective when you in, invest in preferreds. So the, 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 the story that gets lost a lot of times in preferreds, so when people look at the securities, they're often rated triple B, sometimes double B, and people will say, oh, this is kind of a high yield type of investment. Mm -hmm. The reality is that the, the senior rating on average for the issuers is closer to single A. Our securities are rated lower because they're subordinate. And we use JP Morgan as an example all the time. JP Morgan at the senior level, rated single A, single A, double A by the big three rating agencies. Across the board, the preferred's a triple B. But if you own a JP Morgan preferred, you yeah. don't have exposure to a triple B company, right? You're subordinate to JP Morgan. You really have that single A slash double A type of credit exposure. So, so there's a lot of, I think, benefits to preferreds, but at the end of the day, when you have this much sector concentration, you need to be cognizant in your overall portfolio So that's your, JP Morgan's your go-to example in the US. I just got back last year from living in Berlin for five years. I think of Volkswagen. I don't know <laughs> if it's a different structure, yeah. but VOW3 GY yeah. on the terminal is preferred and that's almost traded like they're common. Like if you buy Volkswagen shares, you're buying those. I, I don't get why. So so there, there are sec there is sector exposure outside of financial services. And, and for us, we really still like to kind of even though it's, it's concentrated in that space, that's where we like to hit the ball down the fairway. Kind of like staying within the banks, the insurance, the utilities. In the U.S.? In the U.S., but even no, outside Do you the US. stay in the U.S., though, or do you also look overseas? But when we go overseas, the market is still dominated by non, I, I would say, non-U.S. financial institutions. You'll, the corporate hybrid, corporate preferred universe is, is larger outside the U.S., but still the majority of the exposure is financial services. And so, you know, just remember, we, we're benefiting not just here in the U.S., but also globally from this 
higher um, regulatory environment that, that these banks are operating under today. And, and we benefit as investors from that added layer of security, from that oversight. Um, these banks are incredibly well capitalized, and the insurance space is, is incredibly strong, too. I mean, sitting on record levels of, of statutory capital, the pricing environment for insurance has been incredibly strong. So, so the one big takeaway that we want people to know and understand is that, look, the underlying fundamentals of the large sectors in the preferred space are, are incredibly compelling, and that this income, which we, you know, I, I only touched on briefly, which is why a lot of people will access our asset class, oftentimes is tax advantaged for individual investors. A lot of times the distributions are treated as dividends. And so for folks that are in a high tax bracket um, that need some income, but they don't have any more room in a qualified account, the tax advantage of, of the distributions from a lot of preferred strategies um, puts the taxable equivalent yield much hmm. higher than even the stated yield. Now, when I buy a, a preferred, am I getting a fixed rate, a floating rate? How does that all, that all work? Uh, it just depends what you want. Okay. You can find it all. And so this is where we think also active management comes into play because an active manager can go out there and find those securities that have either a fixed rate coupon or something that's a floating rate or something that's a hybrid, a fixed to a floating rate structure. And so when we look at the overall preferred universe, you're going to have some securities that do have durations of seven, eight, nine plus years. Others, floating rate, pretty much zero duration. So, so you can, depending on your appetite for interest rate risk, you know, really customize a portfolio of preferreds to meet your needs. Hmm. I would need an active manager, like a seeing yeah. eye dog, and I'm blind here. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, for example, I look up at J.P. Morgan's preferreds. I see seven. I don't know where I would go. I guess the dividend, 6% dividend is, yeah. is a strong one. But, um, are you worried your job gets replaced by AI soon? Or do you use AI? <laughs> Can you use AI at your job? You, you know, I think it's really, really tough because there's such very little standardization across the preferred market. And a lot of the things that create value and help alleviate risk is how the prospectus is written. So could we get to a point where AI could go through a prospectus and really pull out those important data points, those minute details, that make one security meaningfully different from another? Absolutely. Are we there yet? I, you know, I, I think we're still a ways off, but yeah. You feel comfortable. You're, you're secure in your job. <laughs> I'm probably more likely to get replaced at home by AI than <laughs> I am in the workplace, yeah. All right, City, uh, $1,000 par floating rate preferred. It's got a current coupon of 9.09357%. I mean, that's pretty good, right? Uh, and it's QDI. QDI so, meaning yeah. it's tax advantaged. It's tax advantaged, right? So so this was one of those structures that started off paying a fixed rate coupon. It was just shy of 6%, got up to its call date. And then for these types of structures, if, this, if the issuer doesn't redeem the security, then the coupon starts to reset. This is one of those examples. Now, Citi right now, could they refinance this security at a lower coupon? Absolutely. But if they do they're gonna be locked into a new preferred for probably at minimum five years. So what they're doing right now, in our opinion, is they're paying up now to maintain optionality, to take this preferred exposure out if they don't need it down the road. And what we feel is, and this is some of the feedback we're getting from the banks, is that they're expecting their balance sheets to shrink over time as the economy shrinks. And if that's the case, they won't need as much capital and that's why they issue preferreds. Preferreds count as capital. So as their balance hmm. sheet shrinks, 
This security now is, is really callable quarterly. So it gives them a lot of optionality just to take it out at some point. Whereas if they refinance it today, they'd lock themselves into a new preferred for a long period of time. All right, just real quick, 30 seconds, aircraft lesser sector? <laughs> yeah. What's that all about? Yeah, so this is important, right? We were just talking about sector concentration. So we try and come with some ideas, some thoughtful ideas outside of, outside of that area. So the aircraft lessor space is a way, I think, to really leverage the, um, the, the very strong story that's, that's underlined and underpinning the airlines, uh, air travel today, this post-COVID environment. Um, and, and the air lesser business model, oversimplifying it is to provide financing to the airlines when they yep. buy 50, 60, 70 aircraft. These guys um, today, I think, offer us exposure to a unique opportunity. Yep. It's timely. And you can still find um, securities DC, here. Yeah. Okay that our interest rate, you know, kind of moderate exposure. Yeah. Interesting stuff, really interesting stuff. Glad we got some, some of your time. Doug Baker, Portfolio Manager and Head of Preferred Securities at Nuveen. Talking about preferred securities, really interesting uh, discussion there. We'll get uh, Doug back. We appreciate him coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The Northern Line, I've been commuting to the city of London on this train for decades raised in the era of Margaret Thatcher and the city's Big Bang. Women thought that we'd be making the decisions by now and getting the rewards. But how wrong we were, the reality is that only 12% of UK fund managers are women. The person who's been at the vanguard of advancing women in the city is Helena Morrissey. Dame Helena, former CEO of Newton Investment Management, ex-chair of AJ Bell. She's advised the government and has a seat in the House of Lords. She's now putting her considerable contacts book and profile to work to get more women managing money. I do think there's an image problem that um, people look and they think, oh, fund management's not for me. It'll be very isolated to be a woman. Um, it's kind of macho environment. And I, and I think there is still, though, a bit of a sort of cultural impediment as well. Um, I think men, many men now, and especially in our industry, really are just as frustrated as the women that we're not seeing more progress. So is this Morrissey's more muscular approach to diversity? I love your expression, Caroline, muscular, because, you know, it should feel very robust. It should be like a, you've got a business objective here. Let's improve diversity of talent. Let's make sure that um, people are included when they join, if they're diverse, and let's achieve better results for our clients. Mentoring some 60 women over a year sounds modest, smaller than the intake at a big investment or law firm. There are around 1,600 UK fund managers, but only about 200 women in all. You could fit all of those women on a single London underground tube train seated. So is Morrissey's legacy achievable? You know, they used to call me a veteran. Now it's legacy. I'm like beyond the grave next. I mean, I hope this is not sort of, you know, my parting shot. But I've always said, you know, I really don't want to leave this industry until it looks and feels very different. And for me, that means that we have, you know, as many women in it as men. And um, say people expect if they have a fund manager come and visit them and if they're a client, they have just as much expectation it's going to be a woman as a man. And that's not the case now. Meet the mentors and what they hope to pass on. My name is Rosie McMillan. I work at Fidelity International, where I'm the director of portfolio management. To say it's been an easy ride would, would, would be a, a lie. It's a case of changing mindsets, changing habits, changing 
deeply rooted beliefs and opening people's eyes to possibility. If gender diversity has stalled, ethnic diversity is even worse. My name is Amatunde Lawal and I work at Bearings. I'm the head of EM Corporate Debt at Bearings. I think there are certain circumstances and certain situations you find yourself in as a female portfolio manager, a female fund manager, and you feel you're swimming against the tide. I've got the intersectionality of being an ethnic minority as well as a female. And I see that come through in my own journey. Ellen Mann is a mentee. She's studying to become a chartered financial analyst, a Cambridge graduate in Japanese. She's working at Jupiter Asset Management. I'd started my career during lockdown, so I'd right. spent uh, uh, almost two years working pretty much by myself. Oh. So I just was really excited to honestly meet other people getting started and, and hear from them. I've joined a team where my uh, my line manager is someone very committed to the mentor role already. So you've got a male mentor? Yes, the idea of having a mentor and the kind of check-ins with them and providing some guidance on, on how do you support someone in those career goals, I think that's very valuable, especially from the kind of gendered perspective. So cautious optimism then, because the numbers truly are embarrassing. CityWire totted up 562 new funds launched in the UK in 2022, but only 10% are being managed by women. It's hard, though, not to be swept up by Helena Morrissey's determination. But in the 20 years that I've been covering finance, the sector has seen little change. Helena and others have a battle to move fund management forwards. I'll leave the final word, though, to Ellen. I'm hopeful, but I think my hopefulness is very much in the context of being lucky enough to be around a team who are very supportive and to have a kind of first boss who has been extremely supportive and wants me to to flourish. Caroline joins us right now on the phone from London. Caroline, what is your level of optimism about change here in the UK fund business? Well, uh, great to be speaking to you. Look, I think it's it's very difficult. On the one hand, this is hugely ambitious, right? Helena Morrissey, if she continues this program with the Diversity Project, in three years' time, she could double the number of female fund managers. That is massively ambitious, even though it's only 60 women. So you could have sort of Morrissey's view and, and, and um, this whole program uh, really amazingly influential in the space. On the other hand, we've had so many initiatives and the numbers have been so difficult to move. The UK's got, you know, gender pay reporting for the uh, big financial institutions, big, big employers in the UK. That hasn't moved the needle that much. You look at the Alison Rose review just this week. She's the CEO of NatWest Bank here in the UK. And that review of entrepreneurship, record numbers of women starting new businesses, but they still struggle to get funding. So that's the context. And I think it's reflected in some of the uh, comments by the women that I spoke to. Caroline, for me, it's great having you on the program. I listen to your show every single morning (laughs) as I drive to work, and I can't think of any better way to prepare for uh, my trading day. Um, Well, my reporting day. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I, I wonder... If, if this is specifically a UK problem or if you see it, you know, any better or worse in New York, is it any better or worse in Frankfurt? 
look, the numbers speak for themselves, right? Globally, 18% of, of of fund managers are female. So it is not particularly better anywhere else in the world. But also, I think that it's important not to think about this pathway program, which is accompanied by doing your CFA, your, your, your exams as well, to be a fund manager in Britain. It is global, isn't it? Because um, as one of the women told me, Rosie, these companies that are taking part, 33 firms, they're global investors. And so perhaps the optimism also is that there's a cascade effect and financial um, cities and centres around the world will be looking at London and maybe, maybe take that example. All right, great stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time, Caroline. A fascinating uh, piece of reporting there. Bloomberg uh, Daybreak Europe host Caroline Hepker with the story about, uh, I guess, what is a st- stubborn problem on a global basis. It is the lack of diversity, gender, uh, uh, and otherwise in the fund management business. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'll encourage people, 4 a.m., Caroline Hepker and T-Mac, Tom McKenzie, uh, on the radio, deliver everything you need to get started. And uh, it's really uh, don't miss programming. And there, it's Assuming you're awake at 4 a.m. <laughs> Assuming yeah. you're awake at 4 a.m. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk stocks with an old friend. Callie Cox, she's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's a U.S. equity analyst uh, with eToro. And I think, if memory serves, you went to that trade school in Chapel Hill. Is that right? <laughs> if I remember. Yeah, that trade school okay. that's not doing so hot with basketball. Yeah. Right now. Anyway, Callie, what do you make of this market? I think the last time we talked to you a month or so ago, the narrative was very different. People were talking about the Fed, ah, this inflation thing, it's, 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 it's in the past. The Fed actually may pause and pivot sooner than we think. That was driving the markets in January. But... The narrative's a little bit differently now. How are, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, well, now people think the Fed could go even higher, and Fed officials are saying the same thing. We have uh, Fed speakers stepping out and saying, you know, maybe a 50 basis point hike is warranted. You know, maybe we should re- reaccelerate. And markets are pricing that back in. From our side, you know, we didn't expect a rate cut anytime soon. We expected maybe a little bit of excitement around the fact that inflation is coming under control. But maybe it's not coming under control as quickly as people think. So I think that's just shifted the mindset a bit. So what does that mean? I just saw Cliff Asnes actually from AQR on Bloomberg TV, and he was saying this market has priced in inflation coming down pretty rapidly. So Mm -hmm. that to me says Cliff thinks we got a ways to go on the downside. What do you think? 
I agree with him. I think it's going to be a lot harder to take inflation from 6% to 2% than it was from 9% to 6%. I'm talking about CPI when I say that. Right, headline CPI. Right, right. And the reason why I say that is because services inflation is still fiery hot. And that's the strong part of the economy, too. This is not a bad story if you step back and look at it, but it does make the Fed's job a lot harder because services inflation is more demand-driven and more tied to the job market. And let's be honest, investors did get over their skis. It makes sense because bond yields fell, but now that bond yields are rising mm -hmm. again, there is a bit of a mismatch. So what do we do here? I mean, do we just wait for the Fed to signal that rates have peaked and or they would put a rate cut on the table? Or is there some way to be active here in, in trying to get positioned uh, for the remainder of this year? Well, I think it's important to sit down and figure out what your view is if you're looking for a short-term opportunity. And I put it in three cap camps. I think of doomsday bears, I think of cautious bears, and I think of straight up bulls. We fall into the cautious bears camp where we think that prices are a little bit too high, sentiment has gone a little bit too far, but at the same time, we're still hopeful that the economy can avoid a recession, and that means markets may not take out the lows. So in that camp, you know, we really like looking for value, we like looking for quality, uh, low valuations, uh, you know, maybe looking at some cheap cyclical sectors, but I think depending on what camp you fall in, that could determine how you approach the this market. I don't know if you have a view on crypto. I think of eToro uh, and crypto together just because so much of the great analysis I read, you know, I first started covering um, Bitcoin was from eToro. Um, I've been amazed by the fact that it's holding at, let's check where Bitcoin is right now. CRYP go on the terminal. 2394. Yeah, 23, yeah. 23, so it's holding at $24,000 basically, just about 15 bucks under. And uh, at a time when the market has decided, oh, darn it, we believe the Fed narrative now. They really are going to keep raising and holding. And so stocks you know, tanked a couple days ago. Bitcoin did nothing. Why is it mm -hmm. so resilient? So this is a really interesting story that I'm watching, and there are a bunch of different theories, but within crypto, Bitcoin is seen as the quality. It's seen like seen as the gold of the crypto space. And from a portfolio management perspective, you look at it differently, but let's be honest, that's the brand that it has. So we're seeing a flight to quality within the crypto space out of altcoins, out of uh, stable coins, into Bitcoin and Ethereum, just because they're so well known and because there is that institutional underpinning. Uh, it's a little weird to me, I'll be honest, uh, because again, as from a portfolio management perspective, it's a risk asset. Uh, and risk assets tend to do worse in high, high rate environments, especially if they don't have underlying cash flows and profits. But it's, it's a perspective thing from what I've seen. There are just more flows going into Bitcoin within the space, and that's kept the price afloat. How about fixed income? It was so, so brutal performance in 2022. What are the you guys at eToro thinking about just broadly fixed income so fixed income you're right it was a really weird year last year i mean stocks were down 10 percent bonds in general were down more than 10 percent it seems like they're rebounding at the same time you know we look at the 10-year yield we say you know it probably can't go much higher than four percent here there seems to be a lot of technical push and pull around that point uh look at short-term yields too you know the fed is talking about re-accelerating rate hikes but Again, let's be honest here. How much more are they going to reaccelerate it? Because the Fed is trying to keep this balance in check of controlling inflation and uh, you know, basically steering the economy and the job market through a slowdown. So 
you know, we talk to more speculative short-term traders. Uh, we remind them that, of course, a recession is still a risk out there, and it may be smart to hedge your positions. Uh, bonds are the obvious hedge there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as a retail investor, you have to realize your time frame. So we're also saying if you're longer term, you know, maybe you have those short term goals that you want to meet. But longer term, let's look at more risk at these levels because stocks are 10, 10 to 15 percent away from their highs. This is a buying opportunity if you have the time on your side. So tell me about eToro. I, I don't know that much about it. Who's kind of your customer base? Talk to us about eToro. Yeah, so I love eToro. I'm biased. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so eToro is a retail brokerage. Uh, okay. We have a lot of millennial and Gen X clients. Uh, our kind of claim to fame is that we have a social investing feed, and we offer a lot, uh, a lot globally. In the U.S., we offer stocks. social investing is not going to be enough for Paul. You got to tell him what that is. <laughs> Paul, there's a social feed, and okay. you can post your trades. On it. Okay, and so you can then follow other people's trades, right? Okay. So the idea is, you can if you, you know, love Callie's portfolio management, you can follow her trades online. You can just copy her portfolio okay. if you like. Okay, which Correct. is kind of a cool idea. I had never heard of it before that. Yeah, it's really cool, especially in this era of community when everybody's looking to everybody else on how to trade, how to invest, and more and more retail how to investors. How to think, how to speak. Yes. <laughs> For good and bad reasons, yes. 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 Uh, but you know, being in that space and having that power to help investors find each other and find community is just such a cool offering. And I feel really honored that you know I'm, I'm kind of the face of that in the U.S. and helping helping you know, connect this community along with the markets that we're all trying to understand and learn so about. So Gen Z, millennials, do they invest? Are they active investors? Yes, do they, they invest. Okay. You're talking to a millennial right I now. I know. <laughs> yeah. You, sir, are talking, talking to, to a, a millennial. millennial. <laughs> and she invests. Uh, yeah, from data that we run, and we keep a close pulse check on the retail investors right. through a bunch of different surveys we do. Uh, but retail investors, millennials and Gen Z are, or excuse me, Gen X, We'll talk about all of them. Gen X, Gen Z, millennials are investing at a more and more rapid clip. We're seeing a millennial coming of age, basically, in the economy. And when people have more money, they tend to invest it. Yep. So, yeah, okay. we're seeing a lot of those demographic shifts where these younger investors are feeling more empowered to invest. Great stuff. I love learning about uh, new ways to invest. Uh, Callie Cox, she's a U.S. investment analyst for eToro. I think you guys are based in Hoboken, right? That's pretty cool, We too. are. We yeah, are. But Hoboken. we just got our New York bit license, so we can move across the river now. Okay. I'm a big Hoboken fan, so that's good there. Uh, good stuff. Callie Cox joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Today in our C-Suite Conversation, Talk about the snack food business. We're going to do that with our good friends at Hostess Brands. Stock symbol. This is my one of my faves. TWNK. Think Twinkie. Hostess Brands. It's a 3.3 billion market cap company. Stock's up uh, 9%. They reported some uh, better than expected results Tuesday after the close. Stock traded up uh, yesterday. We're joined by the CEO of Hostess Brands, Andy Callahan, uh, joins us via the phone. Andy, thanks so much for joining us here. You had some pretty good numbers Tuesday after the close. What are some of the highlights from your quarterly results? Yeah, thanks for having me. We're coming off a great week in total earnings as part of that. I mean, we're coming off our third consecutive year of double-digit top-line growth. We have double-digit earnings growth and uh, double-digit EPS growth. So we're we're really uh, we're really uh, feel like we're in a good spot uh, on our sustainable growth plan, and uh, we reaffirmed our long-term algorithm, gave guidance that was once again another. Uh, profit uh, guidance above our long-term algorithm. And what's really driving 
our uh, our growth is our ability to be able to connect with consumers, reimagine the snacking category for a new set of consumers. And a lot of that is driven by our innovation. We launched bouncers back at the end of last year. And yesterday we just announced the launch of Casbars, which is really bringing baking, which we do better than anybody else into a new confectionery form. And both our customers and consumers are really excited about it. So a big week overall. All right, I'll bite. There you go. What are Casbars? I love it. I love the, uh, so will consumers. So I love it. <laughs> what, what, what are cas bars? Are we, I mean, as, uh, I, I know obviously, and everyone knows the Twinkie. I'm a big fan of the Chocodile and the Ding Dongs. I like the <laughs> cupcakes, uh, prefer the orange ones. But you but, don't drink soda. Uh, well, uh, I don't drink soda anymore. All right, we're not going down. I don't drink soda okay. anymore. But anyway, I, I still do eat this stuff uh, when yeah. I can. Um, but it's because it's not an everyday thing, right? I'm not like living on Twinkies. It's just occasionally sure. in the gas station, I'll be like, damn, I need some cupcakes. Um, so what is a Casbar? Uh, so a Casbar and a basic, and then I'll give you the background because uh, although your behaviors are, are uh, terrific to you, what we find at a macro level is that snacking continues to grow. Snacking's grown greater than food and indulgent snacking is growing uh, greater than a non-indulgent snacking by about 20%. And with all that being said, almost 50% of Americans snack more than three times a day. And so they take a balance sheet approach. Our chief, chief growth officer talked about that. And baking specifically, consumers care about quality. We've invested in quality. And there's a lot of confections company, the indulgence of confections that are trying to get into baking. Well, guess what? We're, we bring in baked goods to the confection category with a a hostess strength of a baked good in a convenient package form, but you can discover a gazillion layers of delicious in our Cas bars. And that's ooey gooey cream, fluffy, fluffy chocolate cake, pieces of sweet crunch, delightful drizzle. It is really a confection form with all the great goodness and quality that consumers want in a baked goods. And we think it is really a big idea. Hey, Andy, when I think about the food business, whether it's a snack business or just overall food, I think of a, a GDP or a GDP plus type type of top line growth story. But as you mentioned, the last three years, you guys have put up low double digits. That also co coincides with the pandemic. How did the pandemic impact your business and will that have any residual effect going forward? Yeah, so the residual effects means will we continue to grow? And the answer is a, a resounding yes. What the pandemic did for us as consumers are in their home, around their home, and traveling around their home, they snack more. And snacking before COVID, during COVID, and after COVID had trends, especially indulgent snacking, that were greater than total food. Consumers are changing the way they eat. They eat more with now with a balanced sheet approach. Uh, my chief growth officer talked about that yesterday. So as they increase the total of occasions or interactions with food, each of those occasions are more choiceful and they have a role in their life. And if they have an indulgent snack one time, they may then later in the day or earlier in the day have a more non-indulgent snack to balance that all out. So that macro trend is uh, unmistakable. And we're living in that. So that what happened with COVID is we were able to, given our investment in quality, the new innovation forms, we're able to reintroduce a new consumer to uh, host this in a way that they hadn't seen before. And those investments during COVID, both innovation, reaching out to consumers, talking to them, our investment in quality, our ability to do that has been able to propel this business. And that momentum has continued after COVID. You know, just a, a finer point on that. When we attract new 
consumers into our franchise, a lot of those are millennial parents. They then repeat at, uh, in other words, our addition of two times buyers is growing at more than twice the rate of anybody else that does uh, 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 baked goods. So we're really attracting consumers, but when we attract them, we really keep them. So those trends are really unmistakable. The same consumer, it's not a, it's not a binary choice of eating healthy or eating indulgent. It's really a balance sheet of how does it all fit within my life. And we're really capitalizing those trends with our innovation, our marketing outreach and our investment in quality. I got to ask, but this is going to sound maybe flippant or, but I'm uh, wondering really, in states where marijuana is legal, do you see a bump in sales? Uh, you know what? I don't know that specifically, but, you know, we, consumers have choices um, and that's what we provide. We want to provide them the best choice at the at really accessible value. That's what we do. And that's why we invest in our productivity. We want our, our operation to be really focused on what consumers care about, really focused on what c customers care about, grow in the category by doing that, and then running an operation and a team that unlocks the greatest potential of our terrific team and our culture to be able to provide that to, to our customers. And we're doing that in a real, real good way. So consumers have a, a, a breadth of choices. Sure. And and uh, and I support all of those, but and we want to give them. Andy, do you? I mean, but you seem very focused, and I'm not sure if I know all of your brands, but they all seem like something that could add to my waistline. Do you also go after food categories, you know, in the fitness or, or health food sector? Yeah, so um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up to you. Not only do we have an indulgent snacks, we are the number one uh, cookie brand with our Bortman brand in the reduced sugar and sugar-free segment. And our Vortman business, that we, which we purchased three years ago, integrated and grew, uh, is, is one of the fastest brands in the $8 billion cookie segment. It's been growing at a rate last year of nearly 28% a point of sale, uh, slightly above 28% point of sale. And we think we're well positioned to capitalize on consumers' focus on reduced sugar as well. We have a leading position. That subsegment of cookies is growing at greater than twice mm -hmm. the rate of total cookies. So we have a, a portfolio of uh, baked goods right. that provide for what consumers' choices are. That's an important consumer segment, so we provide both of them. All right, Andy, great stuff. I uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us. Andy Callahan, he's the CEO of Hostess Brands, NASDAQ symbol TWNK, think Twinkie. Again, the stock uh, is up about 9% year-to-date. Had a nice uh, quarterly earnings reported after the close Tuesday. Stock popped uh, yesterday. So good to check in with the CEO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.